0: For anybody working here in D.C., for the D.C. staffers that American Moment sort of uh, um, watches and guides and offers um, a lot of wisdom to, stay close to your local church. There is no such thing as a Christian who is de-churched. And there should be no such thing as anybody working in politics in Washington who is de-churched from the life of the church. If they are de-churched, if they are removed from that life, focusing exclusively in the life of politics, their souls will die. And ultimately what's going to happen is are going to they're, they're not going to have a long-term what we call a covenantal vision because when they pour their affections on these things which are in many ways temporary right it goes in mm-hmm. four four year cycle so to speak when they pour their affections on that they're they are claiming that temporality is a way of life and for the Christian permanence is a way of life what are the things that will endure and the one thing the one institution that endures, in the scriptures is the holy church. If individual people working in DC are not connected to church by nature, they're being disconnected from eternality. And that's not a good thing.
1: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth. My name is Nick Solheim. I am the COO of American Moment, and I am here today with the Reverend Dr. Yuri Brito. Uh, But before I get to uh, his bio and what we talked about today, a quick plug for all things American Moment. Uh, If you'll go to our website, uh, AmericanMoment.org, you can find information about All the things we're going to be up to this year from our Fellowship for American Statecraft, uh, the Foundations of American Statecraft program, which is our uh, credentialing program for Hill staff, um, AM Fridays, our summer uh, intern lunch training program, um, and all manner of other assorted things we might be up to. Uh, We are very busy here um, at American Moment, but make sure you go to our website and check those things out. Um, Today, we had on the Reverend Dr. Yuri Brito, who is the senior pastor of Providence Church, where he has served since 2009. Born in northeastern Brazil, he has lived in the United States for over 25 years. He earned a bachelor's degree in pastoral studies from Clearwater Christian College and an MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando and um, is the editor of The Church-Friendly Family, author of The Trinitarian Father, and co-author of Commentaries on Ruth and Jonah, published by Athanasius Press. He serves as a board member of the The Theopolis Institute and is the Senior Fellow for Pastoral Theology at the Center of Cultural Leadership. He is the founder of Kyperion Commentary, which is a absolutely great blog you should check it out um an online resource for cultural and theological essays and most importantly yuri has been married for 20 years to his lovely w- wife melinda and is the proud father of abigail ezekiel ephraim elijah and ezra almost had all e names just miss one um so uh we had a great conversation today um about, uh, you're going to get a lot of Presbyterian theology, um, and its intersection with politics today. Some of you may remember, uh, back in season one, uh, Emma and I went out to Moscow, Idaho to interview pastor Douglas Wilson. Uh, we talked a bit about, um, Kyperianism and, um, basically the Christian approach to politics. We dive a lot more into that today, talking about the authority of, um, the christian church uh in politics and over politicians uh we talked about christian localism and maybe a little bit of globalism uh (laughs) it's a it was a very interesting episode um we were you know recording and i had like eight more questions i wanted to get to looked up at the clock and we are already 45 minutes through our time um so uh definitely a lot of great information covered today um so we will go now to the reverend doctor yuri brito Pastor Brito, thanks for coming on the pod.
0: Man, it's a delight to be with you,
1: Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, So as we always like to start the show, uh, tell us a little bit more about you, your background. Um, You know, you're a pastor from Brazil uh, who's given uh, invocations at the National Conservatism Conference, you know, been writing on politics. What's your deal?
0: (laughs) What got into you? Good question. I was born in northeastern Brazil in uh, 1979. My father was a university professor at a local university, taught English and literature. He was a real brilliant man, but also pastored a regular Baptist church, which was part of the um, GARB, the, associate, the General Association of the Regular Baptists, which was in some ways a fundamentalist a variation in, within the Baptist tradition, Northeastern Brazil. He had a, a kind of intellectual, uh, an intellectual fervor within that movement, so he was able to take a lot of leadership roles in the early days. And as a child, I, I watched him sort of unfold his, his labors among the flock and at a, more, um, uh, at a more national level. He was quite influential in establishing some of the early fundamentalist uh, principles and statements of the denomination. And that was in some ways accentuated when he received a scholarship to go to Greenville, South Carolina to study at Bob Jones University, mm. which in those days was sort of the, the political haven you couldn't run for office unless you received the approval of bju <laughs> it was quite of a it was a status thing he uh, went to bob jones university and assumed a um, and and was able to get his degree there the family came with him and so that was my exposure to the united states and how old were you at that point i was 8 when i first came okay and so watching him sort of develop himself intellectually and at a, at a religious level was a really interesting dynamic. Of course, in the early days, I thought to myself, this is never something I want to pursue. It was just demanding and there were counseling demands that were overwhelming, even for our family at the time. But he uh, handled them exceedingly well. And as I watched him over the years, I began to really admire my father in his role and, in, and the, in the congregation, the community. At one time, he was um, sought out by anyone who wanted to run for politics in the city because of his role at the university. So I'd often see political candidates come to my front yard, sit down with my father. I didn't know what they were doing, hmm. but I knew they wanted my father's approval for something. And you could always tell the mood when they left, frustrated, you knew there was a, there was a negation of the request there. But that was sort of my father's um, life that I, I watched unfold before me, northeastern Brazil. In 1996, my father, at the age of 41, had a heart attack and died within days. It was a sort of a very tragic thing for our family. That uh, opened up different doors for our family. We had to move for uh, various reasons to find a bit more comfort and uh, consolation from family members. And at that point, I went from your standard Brazilian boy, invested in the great art of football, And in invested in just in that that unique little world, the South American world, to now having to assume responsibilities in the home, to being the firstborn and having to assume responsibilities in the home almost overnight. Mm-hmm. That brought a sense of, of sobriety and lucidity in my own mind. I thought something needs to happen and change. And so I was able to take on a position as an English teacher when I was 16 years old. It was quite wow. unique. I had the a lot of lawyers and doctors in my, uh, in my class, and they were eager to learn something that I already had somewhat mastered at the age of 16. And I taught for a few years there. And then I had the, the wonderful opportunity to return to the United States to a little town called Altoona, Pennsylvania, hmm. where I finished my uh, high school degree there. And at that time, I had received a bit of a, um, a, a push by a few of the leaders in that community to pursue ministerial training. Didn't have any interest at the time, but I knew that uh, God was was doing something within me that was sort of directing me one way rather than others, and that's when I began sort of my pursuit of theological training uh, early, two, early 1999 to early nineteen ninety nine to two thousands. So
1: uh, what what happened next? Um, I there's a there's a, <laughs> there's a lot in between then. And and now, you know, you pastor a church now, you've written uh, a few books um, on different theological topics, uh, you know, like um, making the, the church friendly to the family, right. and uh, a book, I believe it was called Trinitarian Fatherhood. Father. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, tell us a little more about how you got into some of those topics.
0: Okay, well, the the entrance, the I say the genesis of sort of my intellectual pursuits at a religious level began at a little college that was founded by Bible Presbyterians. And for those for those listening, you may have the name of Francis Schaeffer as sort of a reference there. Right? Yeah. Francis Schaeffer <laughs> was a, a part of the Bible, the BPs in the early 20th century. And uh, that college was at that time relatively fundamentalistic, but it did give me some exposure to Presbyterian theology and polity and things of that nature. Meeting Presbyterians was, was quite an interesting uh, experience for me because they were obviously deeply catechized by parents, which is something that I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And they had a grasp of the flow of redemptive history that was quite persuasive. It was a really beautiful thing, Nick. And uh, I befriended these, these individuals. And when I befriended them, a lot of the resistance I had to any kind of reformational theology began to just crumble. The walls just came down. And I said, I, I want some of that chief end of men theology. You know, It was the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of men to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Yep. I wanted that in, in a very holistic way. I wanted to embrace that. And so they were able to sort of uh, direct my attention to resources that I never was exposed to prior. And that was an interesting entrance into that world. My college years opened me up to the political theology of the Reconstructionist authors that were uh, quite significant in the 1970s and 80s, mm-hmm. think of names like uh, Gary North, uh, Gary Demar, R.J. Rushdoony, James B. Jordan, Ray Sutton, David Shilton. These were sort of the characters that entered my world before, as you know, the more well-known figures in the reform world, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. Yeah, so I came into reform theology through a different. Uh, route altogether.
1: Yeah, you could do uh, an episode on each one of the guys you just mentioned, yeah. and not run out of content. That's true. <laughs> you could. There are plenty of uh, you know great writings, also controversy
0: and <laughs> yeah, controversial. And they were man, they were so prolific. Yeah, they were so prolific. I remember just one quick story here as, as a footnote. Uh, David Shilton was going to um, debate this uh, well-known leftist economist. And uh, there was a two-month between when the debate was finalized and when it happened. Gary North essentially told David Shilton, when you arrive at the debate, I want you to hand that man an entire book that you published in response to his propositions. And it was entitled, um, I can't remember exactly what it was entitled, but it was David Shilton's book, which was an economic response to leftist policies. There, There was no time wasted for these men. They were just, they were very prolific. But that was uh, "Productive Christians in the Age of Guilt Manipulators." That was the title of the book. Yeah, it's a great title, by the way.
1: That that is a great title.
0: It's a great title, and that was my introduction to Reformed theology. So it didn't come in little, uh, it didn't come in soteriological pieces. It wasn't like here's here's your your tulip, here's your salvation theology, here's your ecclesiology. It came as this comprehensive package, mm-hmm. like the Christian faith is either all or nothing, and that was that was an appealing proposition. I wanted a faith that was. More than a merely internalized expression, you know, and I embraced a lot of that material, and then later on, I came across R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and those. But the Reconstructionist movement was so fundamental in my thinking because they weren't afraid to touch on any issue. Yeah. Whereas other institutions, in those days in the reform tradition and still today, yeah, were deeply afraid because they knew they would lose, they would lose donors. Mm-hmm. They would lose the respect of the masses. They would lose um a lot of um, a lot of the more pietist crowd that were not interested in this kind of stuff. They wanted a more internalized religion. Listen, let's, let's deal with where we are, where is our heart? How can we fix it? And the recons came and they said, no, no, once our heart is fixed, we don't need to spend the rest of our lives playing this sort of navel gazing game. We need to take that faith outside to the public arena. Yeah. That was incredibly attractive to me. That was, in some ways, the, the prequel to the the great, the, really the great um, experiment that I had at Reformed Theological Seminary, which was is uh, probably the most, um, pro- it's the largest Reformed Presbyterian seminary in the world. And at that time, when I arrived in uh, Orlando, Florida, which was in 2003, at that time, what I didn't know at the time, I had grown up in Brazil, I didn't know that most uh, folks as they get older, they move to Florida to retire. Yep. When I arrived in Orlando, Nick, all the great Reformed thinkers were in retirement age. Yeah. Roger Nicole, John Frame, Simon Kistemacher, Bruce Waltke, all these godly Reformed thinkers that had written commentaries, uh, great pieces of theological works were there. And I had the privilege to sit under all of them for four years. Perhaps the most influential of them was a man who's still alive in his 80s now by the name of John Frame. Hmm. John Frame was a kind of larger-than-life figure that was, by nature, reconstructionist in the way he thought about everything, Though he wasn't as explicit as the others were. But John Frame was this very tactical, strategic thinker. He thought about it in three main categories. It was called triperspectivalism. And what he meant by that was that every area of life functions through three perspectives. The first one is the normative, which is the guiding principle, that is, the, the norm of the revealed word of God, right? It's revealed, revealed law. The second was the situational. That's where Christians need to consider not only the Bible, but also the situation of, of history, of particular context. And then the third one was the experiential. And Latin Americans are, are by far more prone towards uh, experiential sort of theology, Definitely. right? Yeah. But he added that as a component to this uh, threefold perspective, and I found it so appealing because I felt for the first time complete as a Christian in terms of how I should approach life. For many years, I thought, I can't only, I can't, if I focus only in history, it's going to lead me somewhere else. If I focus only in the Bible, it's going to make me sort of a Bible-thumping, you know, Christian. But if all these three perspectives come together, being guided by the normative, normative of the word, then said that I have a comprehensive system that I don't have to be embarrassed about. I don't have to embarrass about my my emotions, my moods. I don't have to embarrass by my history. And I certainly don't have to be embarrassed by the Bible. John Frame brought these three perspectives and it was it was love at first sight. (laughs) So I had the chance then to do what was really common in those days, which was like an independent study. So I went to his office, made a proposal. He sort of doubled my proposal. Instead of 15 pages, he wanted 30. Instead of 1,000 pages read, he wanted 2,000. And I said, I'd like to do an independent study on Abraham Kuyper. was a Dutch theologian that I had admired for a very long time, but I hadn't delved into much. And the independent study was my opportunity to sort of delve into that unique Dutch world of Kuyperianism. And to this day, it has affected everything I've done pastorally, theologically, academically. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that season of preparation that eventually ended up affecting even how the direction of my doctorate. My doctorate, so when you begin to sort of study under that those, those guys, you begin to see everything in threes, right? Mm-hmm. My doctorate was sort of a, a threefold manifestation of pastoral theology. And then a lot of the work I've done over the years has been how to bring together and always apply freshly the scriptures, history, and our experiences. So let's talk about Cyprianism. Uh, you know, you
1: you run a uh, uh, publication called Cyprian Commentary. Right. Uh, so I knew it was going to come up in the introduction. Yeah, yeah. Um, our listeners might remember we we briefly talked about Cyprianism uh, with uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson back in season one. Um, I highly recommend our listeners go back and and, and listen to that. But uh, for those uh, who might have missed it, what is Cyprianism and how does it? influence your uh, worldview on
0: politics? Yeah, um, good question. Abraham Kuyper was a a Dutchman from the 19th century who was uh, homeschooled by his father, who was a modernist. His father was very skeptical skeptical about the Christian faith, and he uh, indoctrinated young Abraham in this modernist sort of perspective on things. And the modernist uh, sort of thought in, in those days, as they do today, that there is no objectivity in the holy scriptures, that human rationality supersedes the authority of the Bible, human reason. That was the, the, uh, I say, the the, the paideia, the educational format that Kuiper grew up in. That was, uh, it it accompanied him. He was obviously a, a, a brilliant student, a linguist. I mean, he just probably spoke six or seven languages. Enter into the academic world, embracing this modernist perspective. At one time he even says that when the professor got up and said something to the extent of it is absurd to believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He said everybody stood and gave me gave him a standing ovation to this professor. And Kuiper says, and I was one of those as well. So you can tell modernism affected him greatly. When he wrote his dissertation, what he did was because he knew that the Calvinistic roots were not modernistic. And so he thought, perhaps I can create Calvin after my own image. And that's what he did. He portrayed Calvin's dissertation as a modernist, as in some ways a doubter. However, when you read through the Institutes, it's very hard not to be moved experientially by what you're reading. It's just a a very rich uh, assortment of of topics that Calvin covers with with a deep sense of of reverence and awe for the Scriptures and the God he worships. After that experience... Kuyper meets this young lady, gets married to her, and then goes into this little country church in the Netherlands. These were, in many ways, uneducated countrymen in this little country church. However, they were catechized under the Heidelberg Catechism. So they knew what the scriptures were. They knew what the normativity entailed, and they believed that Heidelberg was sort of a summary of that. Kuyper walks in there, bringing all the innovativeness of modernism, and the little country church says, this is ridiculous. This is nothing but the old rubbish. He thought he was being creative, and you know, mm-hmm. and those old country, some of them illiterate folks said, this is just absurd. This is a, a foundational straying from the objectivity of the scriptures.
1: There's nothing new under the sun.
0: There's nothing new <laughs> under the sun, Exactly. <laughs> And, and Kuiper, at one time, the parishioners wouldn't even let him into their homes when he was doing pastoral visits mm-hmm. because they said, "We don't want this modernist garbage here." So stay away. That was very impactful in Kuiper, who thought maybe I need to reconsider everything I believe. Then, at that point, at that point, he began to remember some of the things he had read and uh, written about from in in his interaction with the institutes, and he realized at that point that he couldn't no longer be a modernist; that he had to embrace the full corpus of the Scriptures. And that he needed to go back to the Dutch reform roots. It was a real beautiful story. Kuyper ends up pastoring a couple of other churches. Then, after that, he goes into the, into the, uh, to the publishing world and then the political world, uh, starting the anti revolutionary party. And then he becomes the prime minister of the Netherlands, 1901, 1902. And he embraces that. So you can see a, a, a trajectory there. He's an academician, and then he moves to clergymen, and then he moves into media, and then he moves ultimately into politics. It's an interesting trajectory. As he's thinking through this sort of theological world, he goes back to his Calvinist roots and realizes that in Geneva in the 16th century, Calvin's entire goal in Geneva was to develop this idea that Christ is Lord over all. So Calvin established institutions of learning, institutions of, of commerce. And Kuiper took that sort of, those ideas, those principles, and began to sort of establish an even more holistic model. His concern was that the 16th, 17th, 18th century church were too exclusively concerned about special grace issues, meaning how does the church operate? What are the sacraments? He said, in his mind, those issues were solved. Now we need to move into the realm of common grace, meaning, how does Calvinism move from the from the, the worship of God's people through word and sacrament and discipline into the external form? Like, what does a shoemaker, what does a businessman, what does an artist, an entertainment entertainer, how does he take all of that and apply it? So I, I view it as a Kuyper establishes this sort of sacramental view of the church, but also restorational. He wanted the church to be to impact society and to restore society to its proper roots, which for him was nothing more, nothing less than a Christianized Calvinistic root. That was Kuiper's sort of agenda. And so Kuiper begins to apply all of that into different areas, right? The arts, entertainment, and then politics. In the political world, he received enormous pushback because the idea of claiming this exhaustive idea of civilization under the lordship of Christ through this Worldview lens was absurd for politicians who were very much, uh, very much in love with the concept of neutrality. Right? We can't have we we can't be particularly objective about politics. We need to be, we need to be neutral about these things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Kuiper said that's not possible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that first declaration, Genesis one one, means that nothing in civilization can ever be neutral, because the Creator, who is Triune, has made all things and has done all things well and declared to be very good so at that point uh, at that point he, he he began to think very deeply about the nature of creation and how it ought to be restored to its redemptive form so if the garden was sort of in many ways uh, the redemption of civilization promised creation ought to be the overflow of that redemptive promise in other words creation was to receive the overflow of the chalice of heaven so every good thing that happens in heaven overflows and creation is to absorb it, apply it. Uh, Christians are to go into the heavenly places on Sunday morning, receive heaven's blueprint, come to earth and say, how now shall we then live? Right? Whereas it was very common in the Dutch tradition because of its pietistic roots to simply say, no, no, our faith remains within. It doesn't have an outward image. Kuiper never viewed that as a possibility because he believed so strongly in the lordship of Jesus Christ. So under him being
1: prime minister how did this how did this change the the country at the time
0: in many ways kuyper's influence was very um added a lot of turmoil right you you can't come i mean just imagine here we're in dc here imagine that kind of philosophy being applied
1: well that's where i'm going next so you better start imagining no it's (laughs) good i know
0: and i i want to second that proposition I mean, you can imagine in those days when there was just a lot of confusion, the influence of modernism within the, the Church of the Netherlands, Kuyper was a take-no-prisoner kind of guy. He, when he saw that institutions were crumbling, his reaction wasn't so much, um, let's burn them to the ground. His reaction was, how can we restore these institutions so they can reflect the kind of institution that we believe the Bible portrays? And so in the political world, he's entering into a world filled with confusion about uh, basic, basic moral issues in some ways very much like like today, not as complex as today's uh, uh, confusion, but uh, complex in terms of the way heresy creeps into the church. I think about heresies creeping into the mainline churches in this country, right? Undoubtedly, it's going to affect the populace. So you're going to have heretical churches that are going to create Heretical citizens, mm-hmm. right in the polis, in the city. That's just the nature of things. Kuiper lived in that ethos; he breathed that ethos, and he saw, especially when he became prime minister, and he saw that the the political elites were grasping for power at every at every point, and they wanted that power for self-aggrandizement not for the sake of the people, not for the sake of the good of the people. Of course, you guys don't know nothing about that here in D.C. <laughs> but that was the nature thing. So, you know, it's what you mentioned earlier. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, corruption and power sort of plays both. So Kuiper said, we don't need the kind of uh, uh, power lust. We need a kind of power that decentralizes. And for Kuiper, the state had assumed too much power. And in some ways the state was imposing too much in the church and the church was being shaped by a corrupt state and the church was becoming corrupt in itself. And that was exemplified through the, the modernist controversies and all that. Kuiper says there is a symbiotic relationship here, but the state ought to mind their business fundamentally and the church ought to mind her business fundamentally. The business of the church is not to be seduced by the lust for power The role of the church is to be, if we can phrase it this way, seduced by the goodness of its king and his power, Jesus Christ.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so Kuiper spent a lot of time essentially attempting to uh, pull the state away from its control of the church and also simultaneously saying the roles can go both ways, ensuring that the church was not so much seeking political power but ensuring that the church had its fundamental purpose, which was to speak of the redemptive nature, which was to instruct men and women in word and sacrament uh, a- as an institution and then send men and women out into the world to reshape society so that the society would be attracted to the God of the church.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, let's bring it to the to the American church. Um, i you know, thinking about, uh, you brought up, uh, you know, that a lot of these denominations uh, in the United States that have kind of gone in a different direction, we'll say, uh, uh, from a cultural and a political perspective uh, in the last couple of decades. Um, a lot of these larger denominations, uh, I mean, even the the Southern Baptist Convention is having right. uh, debates on some of these, uh, you know, what we would consider to be uh, foundational issues um, on how Christians should view uh, particular cultural and, and political issues. Uh, right. right. H- how do these influences that you have, um, these Reconstructionist guys, Kuiper, yeah. how do you how do you and and your church and, and the guys that you're associated with um, reach different conclusions from a lot of the mainline denominations in the United yeah. States?
0: Great question. I I think you know the the, the first thing to say is that when times of turmoil happen in society, the church ought to have a definitive answer before the conversation begins. We ought to be objective about all what the what the church's role is. And the church is, is, is in many ways, it's an independent sphere. Um, the Bible says it, it, it's a colony of heaven, we might say. yeah, It's a colony of heaven. It's seeking to colonize earth. Uh, the Lord's Prayer says this, on earth as it is in heaven. So if that's the case, then... What we read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, and we know to be true, is that Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to the church, and then it authorizes the church to function as uh, this kind of uh, institution that communicates and proclaims what God desires it to proclaim in His Word. If that's the case, then the church has a fundamental role to never shut its door, because if the church shuts its door, it, what it's saying is it has shut the doors of salvation. Mm-hmm. Calvin says uh, that, that, that we ought to love the church as our mother.
1: Yeah. Well, let's quick digression there, because that's re- that's a really interesting uh, thing that you brought up, especially vis-a-vis uh, the COVID crisis. You had viewed yeah. many churches that uh, shut their doors um, physically. You know, went online. Um, a lot of churches, especially here in the D.C. area. Um, had capacity restrictions where they could only right. have like you know two dozen people on Sunday as opposed right. to the usual 200 what make this practical what what does that mean?
0: When we sat down to think through some of what was happening in early 2020, I began writing prolifically but I was writing around a thousand words every day for my main blog and I was also on social media also and then writing for other other magazines and things like that. Because I knew at that point, I didn't know the extent to which so much of what we're saying was going to be vindicated, but I knew at that point that we're about to go into a crisis in all sorts of ways. But the reason I knew that, it's not not because I'm I'm a son of a prophet, I'm a son of a pastor, but not so much (laughs) a prophet. But the reason I knew that was because I knew that in seasons where, in seasons of history where churches willingly give up the keys to the nice men in suit outside waiting, right? when the church gives up their keys what happens is their liturgical muscles atrophy and if their and if the church's body begins to atrophy that means that at that point they're going to relinquish and succumb to whatever pressures the state is going to put on them and that's exactly what happened the state came and at the mere mention that this might happen to the church if they don't obey x y or z immediately you and I saw respected ministers, whom we thought were stalwarts, you know, mm-hmm. unmoved stones. Essentially, say, "Here's the keys to the church, and here is the secret codes to our secret time to our calendar." And at that point, um, the United States as a whole and the world as a whole, as a whole, went into this uh, into this monastic life but it's, it's a technological monasticism, mm-hmm. right? Don't worry, we'll have streaming services. We'll make this as pleasant as possible. You can have your mimosas and you can have Jesus all at mm-hmm. once. But what happened was that within three months, the Barney Institute um, said that within three months, 30% of those who were watching streaming services were no longer connected to any streaming services at all. They were de facto dechurched. Mm-hmm. And that continued, so that was in the first three months now imagine 36 months after that yeah and so what will happened to us as a church is we remained open throughout the whole season. Now we had a wonderful governor it helped but I also have friends <laughs> in other denominations uh, in other denominations and in others uh, churches in my denomination around the country who took the high road and said, we ought to obey God rather than men mm-hmm. by the principle of the book of Acts. that kind of principle in some ways, elevated their status. And one of the things I said early on was that churches who uphold orthodoxy and who are happy about it will be the ones who will prosper. That means that the little church with the American average of about 80 people on Sunday mornings are going to have a greater time prospering than your mainline church down the road with 80 people in a building of 3,000 that could fit 3,000, you know? That's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. The conservative church, overall, in across every denominational line—Baptist, uh, Presbyterian, Reform—in the conservative side of things, grew almost doubled in numbers through COVID, and that's because Nick, because everyone thought, before COVID, though we can we, to use uh, our friend, uh, a mutual friend, Aaron Rand's language, everyone thought that we could live comfortably in the neutral world.
1: I was about to bring that up. I bring that yeah. up, yeah. yeah.
0: And the neutral world is is very cozy because you can sort of remain in your man cave without having to make any decisions on behalf of mom and the kids. When COVID hit, at that point, it was staring us in the face and in some cases punching us in the face, which means you can only take so many punches. You know, you can take. Yeah. At, at some point, people either completely surrender and say, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do, or they'll fight back. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I would say, Perhaps 50% of all conversations I've had during COVID in the counseling room or with people visiting our church was from men who said exactly that. I thought I never had to make any objective decisions in the political realm, the religious realm, but now I'm realizing that I was wrong to be silent when God had been calling me to be bold and courageous in my calling. So they moved from the neutral world to uh, as the world was moving uh, moving also to this, this negative world where everything was becoming uh, saturated by uh, apocalypticism, mm-hmm. these men sort of rose and they said, we haven't been members of any congregation for years. We have been completely divorced from church life. But you know what? What COVID did was was accentuate, exacerbated the need for men to assume their role as men and to say, I have failed my spouse, I have failed my children, but we won't get fooled again.
1: Yeah. Do you think that um, that COVID, that there was kind of like a slippery slope between um, COVID down to, I mean, you have a lot of mainline denominations these days, you know, being um, publicly affirming, I think is the phrase they use of uh, homosexual marriage, of transgenderism. Um, Do you think those things are, are, are connected? You know, you start to accept the um, the, uh, you know, prevailing wisdom about right. government and culture and well, okay, you know, we agreed with them on the COVID thing and that was fine, I guess. Yeah. So what's one more thing? Do you think they were connected?
0: I think so, because I think um, that though at times you can have exceptions, at times it's hard to trace, you know, sometimes the puzzle pieces are not next to each other, but they're in the same puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened was everyone received a script. And the script had issues concerning sexuality, issues concerning science, and then issues concerning biology. And for a lot of people, all those came together, which is why a lot of our evangelical leaders uh, really said, I think we need to be consistent about this here, which means we need to be more open towards gay-affirming institutions, gay-affirming relationships. But that also comes necessarily with being more open to the way the government views all these things into the way scientism sort of prevails. So what we had during COVID, as you know, was sort of the age of expertism. Mm-hmm. We had all these experts who sort of came uh, in very liturgical garbs, you know, sort of the, yeah. the I call it the Fauci priesthood. Yeah. They came in liturgical garbs and they and they proclaimed things as if they were inerrant and infallible. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that sort of inerrancy wasn't to be challenged. And if it was to be challenged, you know, off with your heads. It was it was an immediate um it was like you, you were sociologically decapitated yeah like you lost your job you lost everything and at that moment for a lot of people they said if it's a it's a total if it's a total worldview issue then at the very least if I'm seeing all these people embracing scientism as a new religion uh the uh the quote-unquote um sort of the the sexual revolution 2.0 right we had mm-hmm. the 60s and then the the revolution of the COVID era. If these people are taking that route as a package deal on the other side of thing, then I think we need to take this route as a package deal to the right side of things. Yep. And in that case, they realized at that point that there had been compromises among pastors and congregations that they hadn't noticed until that very moment. And then the dots connected. And then they said, we can't be neutral anymore. And so the way of the main line, the way of a lot of these, uh, uh, evangelical, we call it big Eva, yep. right? The way they went was essentially a way of continual compromise. But what's been formed out of that, out of the ashes of that, was been kind of this resurrection theology that desires to preserve orthodoxy and desires to have sort of a, let's say, a healthy skepticism about anyone who claims to, to. Uh, speak on behalf of god yeah you know what i'm saying
1: yeah you you talk to and and by the way everyone listening you know you can you can rest assured uh reverend brito is also a doctor i do have yeah. an expert <laughs> um i have an expert on the show you know we're not committing any heresy here um i i you know you brought up a very interesting point about um you know, men that lead their households in your congregation, um, them having a political responsibility as well, uh, which I I think is uh, uh, a very interesting point. Uh, Going, you know, kind of one step up the ladder, what is the responsibility of um, congregations? And then after that, we can go to, you know, denominations and and larger. But starting with, you know, pastors, elders, um, congregations as a whole— what kind of duty um, or, I guess, permissions mm-hmm. might be a, a better way to put it, uh, do they have um, over people who make policy decisions, mm-hmm. both on a local and a national level?
0: Well, I think um, I think ministers ought to be uh, happy generalists. right? They ought to have insights and principles into all sorts of things. They're not going to be experts in all sorts of things, but they're going to be happy generalists. Which means they should be able to say, here are biblical principles to guide you as someone living in the arena of, of politics. And pastors ought to be the kind of people who, who shape these individuals to do certain things, in, to, you know, back to the language of Kuiper, so that they will be attracted to Zion, city of our God, mm-hmm. the church. And I think that the ministerial role is in many ways, it's certainly priestly, we know that. And then there are two other offices we typically don't think about: is that there is a a prophetic office that ministers ought to embrace, which means that the age of the age of cowardice simply kept men comfortably behind the pulpit mm-hmm. and only uttering what was uh, quote amenable by the masses. The COVID post COVID age now has uh, called a lot of men to embrace another of their roles, which is the role of prophet, which is a courageous role, the kind of role as our Canadian brothers know that can put you in the prison cell overnight, right yeah the role that Bonhoeffer knew in the early days of uh, um, World War II but that prophetic role has been the role that has been uh, eclipsed by um, by the compromise of the modern church. So ministers have to be able to take what's happening in DC and not so much get policy decisions from the or policy matters from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're not specialists in that field, but they ought to say, this is the trajectory we want to go as a people, as a congregation, yeah. as a flock. So anybody who's sitting under their, their preaching under their ministry ought to say, therefore, what are policies that would lead us to this ultimate telos, this ultimate goal, this ultimate agenda, this ultimate trajectory. Mm-hmm. But most pastors have made themselves sort of completely um, aloof to these issues as if they didn't have a role. And. The pastors in the scriptures, the great prophets like like Jonah himself, right? Mm-hmm. Who struggled with this daunting call to go to the Gentiles, the Ninevites. Even though the call is difficult, it's what you're called to do. And so we ought to obey God rather than men, which means um, that a, the men of God ought to put on his clerical collar and mean it. Mm-hmm. He's a servant of the people. Therefore, his role is uh, didactic as well as confrontational in many ways. Yeah, And so the pastoral role... I think these days has become much more prominent. I think it returns to the old uh, to the old American days where you know, sermons were printed in the front page of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I think that role ought to return today, that function in society, where ministers in many ways are guiding not only the people in their piety, but the people in the public square and at least adding their voices to say, this is where we should go as a people who submit to Jesus Christ.
1: And in a christian society you know with a, a, a probably healthier church than mm-hmm. than what we currently have in the u.s right now um what practically does that look like uh, and i can kind of get at what i'm trying to say yeah. uh with you know one uh, weakness in american protestantism is we seem to have forgotten uh about church discipline and, uh, something that Catholics are certainly better at than, than we are. Um, but how, how would a, um, Christian society handle, uh, you know, people who commit heresies against the nation, you know, supporting, um, abortion, let alone like funding it. Um, how would you, or how would a Christian society handle politicians, policymakers and issues like that?
0: Yeah. Well, in the first element you mentioned, this is Calvin's three marks of the church, right? This word, sacrament, and discipline. And so many churches have attempted to function as if all they can do is word and sacrament. I mean, the sacrament part, of course, is optional, you know, once a month, once a year, (laughs) different conversation. But then the discipline becomes something just on the side that we we assume in times of great trials like, uh, you know, the Salem Witch Trials or Mm -hmm. in Puritan New England, those were okay back then, but now we are in a place of comfort and we don't need to apply these things. We're enlightened. We're enlightened people, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're enlightened, therefore we, we have moved beyond um, that, um, that rigidity. Mm-hmm. However, uh, the, the practice and the doctrine of church discipline through excommunication, as the Gospel of Matthew sort of um, develops, is the only way that the church can be purified from the stains and corruptions of this world. If the church allows men to come and to entertain congregations from within with false doctrine, then the church will be, it'll be torn asunder very quickly. That has happened for too long. If the church functions as the one who the gates of hell shall not prevail against, then the way the church wars against hell itself is by sending those within who belong to hell to hell itself. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what excommunication is, is the handing over of a man who was in the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness, handing him over to Satan, the gospel say. And if that kind of thing doesn't happen with our politicians who condone abortion, the politicians who condone all sorts of of immoral practices, Mm -hmm. or in some ways that are just indifferent to it, I think indifference is the sin of our society, right? I don't want to opine about these things because I don't want to... But that level of compromise ought to be charged and exhorted in certain cases, especially with some of our politicians today, they need to be objectively excommunicated from the table of our Lord Mm -hmm. so that they know that the Church of Jesus Christ is not just a social club for the elite, but it's it's literally the social city of heaven where order and decency ought to prevail at all times and in all places.
1: Yuri, that sounds like Christian nationalism.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Some people would say that, Nick. I,
1: you know, you know, you're not going to get out of this podcast episode without without me asking you yeah. about that. Yeah. Um. Uh. About Christian nationalism. Um. There, there have been a lot of. Um. I think a lot of people honestly have very different uh, definitions of it. People have written books about it. There have been a few. Um. I think uh, some of the uh, least helpful. Uh you know, content about this is like, you know, these NBC journalists that drop in the middle of nowhere and they're like, oh, look at these Christian nationalists, you know, they're going to destroy our country. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the whole, uh, you know, it's been, uh, you know, six months to a year we've, we've had, uh, Christian nationalism discourse. Um, what are your, what are your general thoughts on it? And the reason I ask is because I think you'd have a more, uh, heterodox opinion than most of the other people I would ask.
0: Yeah, I got you. Well, thank you for that. I was reminded of uh, how NBC uh, took their crew over to Moscow, Idaho. Yeah. And interview uh, the infamous Douglas Wilson, right? Yes. And when they got there, they had this quote where the Doug Wilson said something um, benign, like, it is is our desire to turn Moscow into a Christian city. And of course, it was like uh, the demons erupted, you know, from from every part of hell and came out and said, how dare you say such a thing? Yeah. Well, in my estimation, that is one of the mildest statements that a Christian can make. Yeah. One of the mildest statements. I am I'm, I'm a I'm a, a good old fashioned sort of Chestertonian localist. I think I think every town in some ways, it's not so much a Christian nationalism, but I think it's Christian localism. Mm. Let's begin there. And I think that's the duty, that's a tangible duty that Christians have in their communities. I I'm in Northwest Florida. We have obviously a great governor. But we also have certain things in our town that are not reflecting the kind of Christian principles that I think the Bible lays out for us. Well, that has to change. That has to change. And when politicians say, no, that can't change, then Christians ought to bind themselves together under this great mission to change that policy so that it reflects the Scriptures. In other words, uh, as Kuypert said um, Every atom, there's no atom in the world. There's no rogue atoms. Everything is under the sovereignty of Jesus who cries over them, mine. So unless the earth is tattooed with the glory of God, Christians should go to bed unhappy. Mm -hmm. Romans 4 says that the the heirs of Abraham are heirs of the whole world. Well, that is a process that began with the ascension of Jesus in the first century, continues now in 2023, and we will still be in that mission in... 3033 3023 a thousand years from now because we believe that in in the christianization of all things and so that means that the proposition perhaps of, of christian nationalism in some ways is too mild
1: mm.
0: i want to be a little more extreme than that
1: christian globalism <laughs>
0: christian globalism <laughs> however it's phrased it ought to be phrased in the sense that it covers both the uh, the unique flavor of who you are in your particular local church and your community and also the ultimate goal that Matthew twenty-eight sort of entails is that the gospel should go to all the ends of the earth. And so in our mm-hmm. Jerusalem's and to the ends of the earth. And so I, I have uh, no problem with the proposition itself. I, I would want to add certain footnotes to it, but I think the proposition as it stands uh, is at least a good place to begin. Mm-hmm. And so, which means that anytime you have a proposition that unites people, you're going to have different flavors of it, right? Yeah. And so my role is sort of uh, attempting to find to reconcile all these. Uh, these these beautiful voices that are coming to the conversation are saying, "Here's our goal. Here's our agenda. Mm-hmm. We're going to come from different perspectives. There will be um, there will be Catholics who think differently than I do. There'll be Protestants who think differently than I do. There'll be Orthodox who think. But how can we uh, come together because our cause is much greater than our distinct denominational differences?
1: Yeah, I think one of the the biggest <clears throat> areas I think of of pushback to what you're saying is like. Oh, okay, well, you're a pastor, you're a Christian, you know, obviously you're biased. Um, but, you know, America is not a, a, a Christian nation. You have all these people, you know, different nationalities, different faiths. What's your answer to that?
0: Well, my answer to that is that the land of Israel, a little plot of land in the Old Testament, was an isolated piece of land among all these unbelieving pagan nations of the earth, right? And God had no problem in saying that you should, should go to the ends of the earth evangelize them, and bring them to the knowledge of the God of the Bible. That was when Israel was a minute group of people. When the first century happened, there were 12 following Jesus. By the time of Constantine in the fourth century, that number had increased dramatically. Safe to say in 2023, there are around 2.2, 2.3 billion people claiming to hold to the Orthodox faith. That's a significant leap. Mm -hmm. We've come a long ways. The problem, of course, is a lot of in a lot of these sort of uh, this these Christian groups, there is a still a certain fear of embracing this calling. However, um, I've, I've told my congregation and, and when I do conferences that if you have a congregation of eighty people who are loyal to this mission, they can be much more effective in the public square than a congregation of two thousand mm-hmm. who sort of play this game but not really invested in that task. And so I'm not so much concerned about the unbelief outside, I'm concerned about the apathy and the limitations of belief within. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to stir men and their passions to pursue the right things. Because once that happens, you're gonna have a, a revolution of sorts here. The, the, the population went from a, a relatively small homeschooling country to I think two to three percent of the entire United, Pop- United States population homeschooling, mm-hmm. that's a gain for us. So Christians ought always to think, however big the the um, the scary sea monsters come out to sort of frighten the the Christian church, the great ark. However scary they might be, what we are doing as Christians is that we're playing the long game. Yeah, we should never think what's going to happen in D.C. in a year from now. We should always think, how would this seat look like 40 years from now? And at that point, we can begin to strategize at a very local level, the mm-hmm. kinds of things you guys are doing at American Moment, which is really, really fantastic, at a local level, how we can move the ball forward. And that means there's a, some people don't like this language, there's, there's a high demand for incremental changes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? There are people who just, um, they kind of think in black and white categories, if these laws don't change overnight, therefore, I don't want to be part of it. Well, this is a long-term strategy. God had a long-term strategy, yeah. And the gospel is portrayed as a little seed that was planted and eventually becomes a great tree that provides shade for the nations.
1: If you were a real post-millennial, you'd say four hundred years, and not forty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have little faith, right?
1: Um, I, I so you've hit on something important in talking about you know the people that uh, lead our churches. Um, you know, replacing um elites and kind of training the next generation of leaders is something that we're all about. Uh, at American moment um as you uh, graciously mentioned um and i i i want to ask this question you know and preempt it with i know you're you're doing a lot of this work on training already you're on the board uh for the Theopolis Institute um doing a lot of great work training um to pastors and local leaders and that mm-hmm. sort of thing but um how can we kind of fix this um i don't want to say like elite overproduction, but like, you know, an overproduction of pastors that are kind of mealy-mouthed as it relates to a lot of these uh, cultural issues, even on a local level. How do you how do you fix that? How do you train up, you know, new generations of uh, church leaders and pastors, and what does the future of American Christendom look like?
0: I think the, the, this is no longer a hot take. It used to be, you know, 10 years ago, <laughs> but I think in some ways the hot take today is to say, that traditional institutionalism uh, is going to die little by little Mm -hmm. because most theological institutions have gone with the flow and for a variety of reasons because the donor base and, you know, there's a lot of uh, economic issues regarding there, how they frame their confessions, for example, right? Mm -hmm. There was a season where confessionalism was just absolutely crucial, but then uh, in the last 20, 30 years, there's exceptions to everything. That's one area we need to be very cautious But I think what's going to happen is I think we're going to see a a greater emphasis on local institutions, in particular local churches, providing new shepherds and new ministers for the next 20, 30, 40 years, or as you say, 400. Mm -hmm. That is where the key is. Institutions of higher learning um, have suffered a thousand deaths. They have in many ways uh, committed ideological suicide. And what we're seeing right now is the depletion of that world. Which really emphasize, they really function the negative world as a way of, of winning the game. They thought that's that was a way to do it. The local institutions that are going to be now training, it's going to become much more in some ways domestic. In the sense that young men are no longer going to be sent to institutions of higher learning, divorced from their local lives, they're going to be um, they're going to be bringing together their life in the church and their life of, of the academy. While trying to manage, you know, children and things like that. Yeah. In other words, the, the future generation of pastors is gonna demand a certain level of, of of productivity from men, or as um or as Doug Wilson calls it, productivity, right? We're yep. gonna have to plod along. We're gonna have to plant seeds and move forward in a way that level of productivity wasn't demanded of men even 20, 30 years ago. So men are gonna have to be much more creative. They might have to find um, sources of income that they didn't think was possible in, as a way of preparing themselves for the ministry. And they're going to have to be shaped by a kind of 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 historic orthodoxy. The Christian church is going to have to go into some ways to their ABCs again because creedal orthodoxy is no longer a thing to be desired or, or to be loved. Well, young men are going to have to come. And one way to do that is they grow in orthodoxy and what's going to happen, which is already taking place in mainline churches where the average age is somewhere between 70 and 78. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen is there'll be a slow fading away of these institutions. And by God's grace, we'll take over their buildings. (laughs) We'll take over their buildings and we'll also uh, take over their faulty confessions and we'll replace them with the word of God and godly confessions. Mm
1: -hmm. And, uh, lastly, you know, uh, our audience primarily uh, is involved in the D.C. area. A lot of them uh, work in politics, work in Congress, aspire to work in future presidential administrations, um, m- most of them faithful Christians um, and Catholics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what What is your advice to them?
0: My advice to them is to stay very close to your local church because— It's not so much that politics corrupts, but is that politics has the, politics is in some ways sort of the the best autobiography for the failure of humankind Mm -hmm. because there is a continual exposure to how you can be corrupt faster than the other person. The opportunities are so many. For anybody working here in D.C., For the D.C. staffers at American Moment sort of uh, um, watches and guides and offers um, a lot of wisdom to, stay close to your local church. There is no such thing as a Christian who is de-churched. And there should be no such thing as anybody working in politics in Washington who is de-churched from the life of the church. If they are de-churched, if they are removed from that life, focusing exclusively in the life of politics, their souls will die. And ultimately what's going to happen is, are going to they're, they're not going to have a long-term what we call a covenantal vision because when they pour their affections on these things which are in many ways temporary right it goes in mm-hmm. four four year cycle so to speak when they pour their affections on that they're they are claiming that temporality is a way of life and for the Christian permanence is a way of life what are the things that will endure and the one thing the one institution that endures, in the scriptures, is the holy church. If individual people working in D.C. are not connected to church, by nature, they're being disconnected from eternality. And that's not a good thing. Amen. Yeah.
1: Where can people uh, find you, keep up with the things that you're um, writing, buy your books?
0: Yeah, well, I, I try to cause my standard sort of brouhaha um, on various places, but my social media platform, my uh, my Facebook page, which is just my first and last name, uh, kyperion.com, we have around 20 writers who are very gifted. And um, kyperion.com, we post regular articles on essays ranging from theological and political. And um, those are just very fruitful. And also movie reviews, so entertainment. We kind of delve into all these things, which is the Kyperian way of doing mm-hmm. things, right? And then I have a Substack account, which is drbrito.substack.com, where I uh, opine on uh, things concerning um, uh, lectures that I'm doing, but also... Uh, notes and videos of things I'm doing on the side that are probably not as exposed to the public. It's just for for my subscribers there. So that's a good place to sort of get a bit more in-depth on in the things I'm doing these days. And where can people follow you on Twitter? On Twitter, it's just my first and last name, Yuri Brito, U-R-I-B-R-I-T-O. Hope to be lovely to interact. It's just that uh, Twitter is just a, a a wonderful place to learn succinctness and also learn self-restraint.
1: Not anymore. Now you have, as I think, as many... What is it? It's like a couple thousand characters now. If you're like a yeah, Twitter oh yeah, subscriber. if you have the the blue. Yeah, yeah, I saw. I saw James White was already starting with his like really yeah. long. I was like <laughs> scrolling through, skip.
0: You know, yeah, just yeah. going right past it. It'll be, it'll, uh, be you'll be um, scrolling through little essays. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's an absolute good night, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me, brother.
1: Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth and thanks to uh, Reverend Dr. Brito for coming on the show. Um, One more plug for American Moment stuff, AmericanMoment.org to see all of our programming, our podcast. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at Nick S. Solheim, as Sarab always likes to say. You can direct your podcast complaints to my email, Nick at AmericanMoment.org. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.